Welcome to the Cowcast, episode 37, listener Q&A. Alrighty, welcome back. I'm Eric. I am James. And we are going to do a little bit more listener Q&A today. We've got a question this time from our friend Don, a.k.a. Perseus, on the uh comic book page slack channel and forums and his question is really about the content of books now versus a couple decades ago Um, and the question that really that he has is are superhero books written for the reader who has been reading for 30 years or for new readers or in between so there's a lot there Mm -hmm. there's a lot to discuss do you have kind of a, a knee-jerk thought uh, right off the bat? Well, yeah. I think for the longest time, comics specifically weren't being... Uh, and Marvel, specifically, were not being written to target the old readers. Um, they were being written to target... I mean, it's it's obvious that they wanted to get a new market in. Uh, I think if you look back to... When books really start, I would say in the early 2000s is when you really started getting people writing for the trade, writing in kind of digestible blocks of six-issue stories. Uh, whether it was editorially driven or not, um, that's what you started getting. Six-issue stories or you know four-issue stories, something that could be turned into a trade that could be sold in a bookstore. Um, and you had people that were, you know, obviously Bendis is, is kind of, uh, references like the king of taking something and drawing it out, uh, decompression really. I think that, uh, that's not necessarily always true. Bendis, that's just his writing style. And he's written some, some really good, uh, done in one stories. I, I've, I'm, I've always been torn on Bendis because I think he's capable of a lot of really great stuff. I actually really liked his Daredevil run. I've, I've liked a lot of the street-level stuff that he's done. I just haven't liked his superhero stuff. But um, I think Bendis gets an un, kind of an unfair amount of uh, flack for dragging things out for you know, 50, 60 issues and some things. Well, I think Scott Snyder got a little bit of that towards the end of his Batman run Yeah, in New 52. I think a lot of people started getting that because I think what happened was... Um, people turn, people took what used to be, uh, a comic, your average comic would have one story or sometimes even two or three in, in just one issue, you know, back in uh, the silver age and certainly the golden age when your average book was, you know, 56 or 60 pages. And, um, then you had your 80 page giants and your, your hundred page giants and, or super spectaculars or whatever. And they crammed four or five stories into each one. Then you went to a lot of uh, one-story-per-issue stories and a lot of the Bronze Age uh, books, and um, you started getting serialized in a lot of stuff, Uncanny X-Men, uh, you know, the Claremont stuff got very serialized, New Team Titans was very serialized in a way. Um, so I think what happened was you kind of had... But you could still really jump in on a, on a random issue and, and kind of, I mean, that's, we all, that's what we all did. That's how we all jumped into comics, or at least most of us did was, I mean, I, one of the first comics I got was a random issue of X-Men that was smack dab in the middle of some 
giant thing with 20 years of continuity and, and Claremont storytelling behind it, you know. Um, but it didn't put me off the story. I wanted to jump in and find out who these characters were and what their motivation was. Um, but I think on average, the, the companies decided that, or they thought erroneously, that comics are kind of a dying art form and that it's, you know, every year the average age of a comic book buyer gets a, a year older because we're not getting new people in. It's skewed to an older market. So they wanted to start targeting younger people, Marvel especially. Why do you think they rebranded as Legacy? You know, um, they weren't necessarily talking about their characters as much as they were talking about trying to get Legacy readers back, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they and they even mentioned that, specifically mentioned that they wanted to get old readers back into it, make it a jumping on point with familiar numbering. Kind of the make mine Marvel again kind of thing. Right. And look what they brought back in order to do that. Marvel's value stamps. You know, that's kind of crazy. Uh, they they haven't done numbering. that. Yeah, they haven't done that since the 70s. Um, I think that it, it, that the attempt to bring in new readers is fantastic, but I think that it's been approached the same way that they've attempted to bring in new characters. And the um, I think that the the goal is a worthy and admirable one. I think the execution might not have been very good. And I think that companies like Image, you know, Paper Girls and Walking Dead, obviously, and anything Brian K. Vaughan has, uh, has written, has probably done more to bring in new comic readers uh, than anything Marvel and DC has done in the last 20 years. And it's harder to take people that are reading... Saga and Paper Girls and get them to jump into reading uh, Uncanny X-Men or... Batman. Or, right. Well, I don't know, actually. Batman, I think, is a sell that you can make. It's still not uh, easy for people that don't want to be burdened with years of continuity. and um, it, it, There's a bigger uphill battle to climb. Well, you'd admit it's a lot harder to get somebody to jump into Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, though, than it is Batman. Sure. So taking somebody and, and trying to get them to jump into superhero uh, culture... Is very, very difficult, even if they are big fans of the movies and the TV shows. Um, but now we're seeing this kind of sw- this pendulum swinging back to the companies uh, with DC Rebirth kind of embracing, at, at the very least, embracing pre-New 52 um, characterization and material. And, uh, you know, Dan Jurgens jumping back on, on writing Superman and things like that that people were either familiar with or new new creative teams that were taking a, a character and putting a, a familiar uh, approach to that character. Um, and Marvel, like we said, Marvel's doing that with Legacy. I don't... So I think that there's... By and large, they tried to target new readers. And targeting new readers is great, but I think they did it in the wrong way. And I don't think that it was necessarily successful, especially looking at the the numbers of, of comic sales right now. Um, I think we're, we're pretty, I think it's pretty easy to say that, uh, it's not digital comics that are all of a sudden coming out of nowhere and, and cutting down comic readers, you know, from coming into a shop and buying the physical product like everyone thought. Um, and 20 years ago, everybody thought trades were going to kill the individual issues off too. So, so I, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that um, kind of my feelings on it are similar to yours, where it's skewed one way and now they're trying to find a little bit more middle ground. 
Um, I think that with the emergence of independent publishers, I think that theoretically created more on-roads because new universes are built, new characters are created. Um, I do think, though, that at some points, and you may disagree or may agree a little bit with this, but I think sometimes some of the independent stuff can almost be a little bit more of a, a detriment. Uh, it'll get people in for maybe a, a miniseries, like a six-issue run, uh, but then if it stops after that, sometimes people, either they don't have a... They haven't been hooked enough to want to try and find something else, especially if they're buying it digitally and they're not mm-hmm. buying it from a store. Um, they just kind of get turned off and go, oh, that was it. Oh, that's it. I'm done. I don't think it happens a lot, but I do think that that's, that can happen. But more to the the question of who are they writing the stories for, I think what um, what you see with DC in particular right now is they've put a real focus on reprinting and recollecting a lot of that Golden and Silver Age and even Bronze Age work that, to your point with the X-Men and, and you know, 20 years of Claremont history, it you can jump in the middle of it and it's still good stories and it's still stuff that you want to read and you can get caught up. You know, there's good recaps and that kind of stuff. Um, I think that what DC has been doing with a lot of those collections is trying to do one of two things: provide those on ramps for new readers who want the back history. But well, they but they've been doing that for thirty years. You got to remember because the archives sure were, used to be a huge market. Sure, they, um, they have been with but Marvel and the Masterworks, but now they're doubling down and they're going after things that haven't been redone. We saw the call out from the DC. Uh, that DC uh, retailer Facebook page where they were looking for specific issues that they yeah. don't have in their archives. They're trying to dig deeper, and they want to bring this stuff well, out and they, in print they for even people to get in an affordable way. With that Green Arrow omnibus, that even though the page count was the same as the previously released Flash omnibus, it was $75. The yeah. Green Arrow one was 125 I think. Because they had to buy some of those pages or books, and on top of it, they had never been digitally remastered, which these yeah. other ones have been. So there was just a higher cost associated. Right. Well, and that's another thing that used to, and to this day still does affect. If you look at the prices of some of the Marvel Masterworks now that they're still putting out, DC is not making any new archives, but Marvel's still putting out Masterworks every once in a while. The Masterworks are the same price as an omnibus. Yep. Um, the new champ, well, the Champions uh, Masterworks just came out recently. So it's $99.99. And I can go buy, uh, for the same price, I can buy a Marvel omnibus that has. 35 issues in it and it has the same beautiful presentation so eventually you're going to have they got to get something in line with those masterworks because I think and that's a whole different (laughs) subject maybe they could just start with with the numbering mechanism that they use (laughs) yeah that's been another one that's horrible I mean we have a lot of masterworks on the shelf but they don't look good next to each other there's I don't know that's a a whole different subject though we won't get off on that but yeah I, I think that by and large, we are at a point now where we have to kind of find that middle ground. Um, I think, to your point, Marvel did push harder on getting new demographics in mm-hmm. to, to reading books. And and unfortunately, I don't think it helped them. I think in some cases it may have hurt them more than it helped. And I think that the call that a lot of people came out with was, why change existing characters? Why not create new you're telling me with all these this creative talent, you can't create any new characters. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't see DC push so hard on changing all of their mainland superheroes to be different people, have different things. There were some adjustments. There's no doubt about it. And there always will be. Um, but, you know, I wonder if part of the whole Dark Knight's Metal and the new, like, 
the new line that's going to be coming out here in the next month or so, if some of those aren't geared towards hearing that feedback from other publishers that was being given to other publishers and saying, you know what, it's time for us to create some new characters. Let's give it a shot and see where we go. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's part of it. If not, it's just a good happenstance and timing, but here's a, a kind of a devil's advocate argument too. You, you had mentioned who are the companies writing for? So Marvel and DC, we, we know who they were and kind of are writing for now, but image is just for the most part writing for Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and that I think is another part of the problem that you brought up earlier that can disenfranchise people where, you know, the first issue or the first two issues will come out. That's enough to get an option. And in a lot of cases, there's no need to, to further the story. You know, um, I, I know, uh, firsthand about somebody who, uh, made a significant amount of money from only putting one issue of an image book out with no intention to ever put out a second issue ever, ever, but it was all about the option. And they made a good amount. Of, you, I told you how much money it was, and you were blown away. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made a, a killer amount of money on it. And there's that um, image is, I think, the go-to place to do something like that, and and to take um, to take something that otherwise, how do you get this pitch through Hollywood? And well, okay, it's they're buying everything comic book related. You know, um, I can I can write this comic, and then some studio will give me fifty or sixty thousand dollars for it, and if it gets made even better, you know, then they're on the red carpet hanging out with uh, Angelina Jolie or somebody. So I, I, I think a problem is now that's not necessarily everybody, obviously. Um, but there's a, an, I hate to say an image problem, an image, image problem <laughs> that a lot of their books, and we hear this from customers, are backdoor TV pilots or movie pitches. And that, that either... And and I do wonder if that's something that, that gives people pause it is an existing reader, not a new reader, but is an existing reader to jump on a new image title when a number one comes out. Because is it going to finish? Are we going to get the first arc and then we don't get anything else for two years, you know, or something or ever? Um, I think it makes people wary of jumping on to a lot of, a lot of new image books. And we've seen that not, not just, here in the store with, with image sales, number one's declining a little bit, but everyone that we've talked to that has a store has said, we used to order all the image number ones, whether it was uh, deep or at least just a few of them. And now we have to pick and choose because there's so many new ones every week that the market has, has, you know, at this point been oversaturated with those. So I don't know if, and, and to, to jump on the next kind of um, tangent out of that, what I think this is an obvious one, but it's a question worth asking. What do you by and large see? More people jumping from they came in here to read Walking Dead and now they're going to branch out into superheroes, or people that were reading superheroes branching out into reading Image and Independence? Hmm. I tend to see a little bit of both. I see it way, way more in the I started reading superheroes and now I want to read this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think especially not to pick on them, but especially lately Marvel, you see more people jumping off of Marvel books and supplementing their reading with other titles. Well, our Marvel readers that have jumped off have jumped onto DC. Right. That's true. They've been the lucky recipient of whatever's going on over there. Yeah. 
But it is amazing how Rebirth coincided so well with Marvel's kind of fall from yeah. prominence. Like it, it just the timing on that is is the one of the smartest moves that they that DC's ever made. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it was fully calculated down to the nth degree or if it was just happenstance, but either way, it's, it's yeah. worked out for them. And quite honestly, from a DC readership standpoint, it's worked out for us. Now, here, um, let's talk about, um, since we're, we want to address those kind of long-term readers that have become lapsed, we have a couple long-term readers here who only are buying books. They don't read them, but they're only buying them because they have... 30 to 40 year runs of that book and they want to keep going. So we've got one guy who gets action and detective and uh, he's been buying them forever, uh, 30 or 40 years. And his plan is to buy action and detective until it gets to 1000 and then he's going to stop. And he wants to just have a a full run of action from one to 1000. Now, when we say full run, this guy, he does have an extremely low grade action one. So he is very close to a, a full run of action. And, and we've, we know he's got it. Uh, it's, it's been confirmed. Uh, but he's only, he hasn't, he said he hasn't read a, one of those books in 10 years. Right. He's only buying it to complete his run. Um, so, you know, I wonder what happens jumping off at 1000. Um, you gotta do something to hook these, to hook these guys into staying. And we try to get him to read it. We try to convince him the story's really great. Or this issue ties in with something else. You should pick that up just to get the series. Like, oh, I don't care about the tie-ins. I don't read it. It's hard for those because it, it feels like they, there's a finite lifespan on these people buying books because they've yeah. essentially told you that. And now they're coming in and they're spending money. But how do you take somebody who's been disenfranchised with the stories for 10 years, but they're still buying it, but only to a point. And how do you get them excited again? And that's something we're trying. We've tried with, with these guys. Um, now the, the opposite is a guy who comes in, he doesn't collect any books. Like he'll donate them or throw them away or what. He just doesn't care. Like to him, it's a completely, uh, it's consumable. Yeah. And, uh, he just wants to read the story. He doesn't care if it's, if it's number 738 or if it's the 14th number one relaunch. He just wants to keep reading these characters and reading the stories. So for this guy, it's the complete opposite where he doesn't give a rip. What the what the numbering is? He doesn't he doesn't really care who the writer or the artist is. He's just going to read it indefinitely. He just does not care. And to him, there's no collectible um, gimmick that can be used to get him to spend extra dollars. You know, he's already buying it. It doesn't matter if there's a lenticular or regular cover. He's just going to buy the regular cover, even if they're the same price. He doesn't care. Uh, so what do you? There, there's got to be a happy middle ground. I mean, that guy is. Kind of, I guess, by definition, you would think he's, he, you would say he's a perfect customer because he doesn't care about the gimmicks. He doesn't care about the renumberings. You're not going to turn him off by saying, um, uh, Venom jumped from number six to number 150. He just doesn't care. Um, but I don't know if that's another one where if this guy gets kind of disenfranchised with something or if something confuses him or if he doesn't understand all of a sudden, um, this title got renamed, and now this character got split out into this, and now he's got to buy two titles or something like that. Like, where? How much? How much goodwill and, and good faith can they milk out of a customer like that? You know what I mean? That's the kind of thing that I worry about. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and how many of those customers are out there percentage wise? Not a lot. Right. That's Not the other lot. problem too. Um, no, I think that those are all fair, fair questions and points. Um, I was, as we were talking, I was kind of thinking, um, you tell me what you think. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there weren't as many players in the publishing market. You really had the big two and maybe a satellite underground, a few other things here or there. So your readership was really fully directed at two main publishers. And those main publishers had to cater to whatever that full population Mm -hmm. of readers are. With the explosion of independent publishers, we see things like, boom, that has a, a very large presence of books for young younger kids even under the teen age you know but it, everyone remember that there we've always had these kind of equivalents though we've had you had first and you had all these other different companies that you know dark horse has been around since the 80s image has been around since 92 i um, wouldn't i guess i wouldn't consider dark horse to be a kids publisher no i'm not saying about kid kid publishers but i'm saying independent publishers and look how many of them folded that were around in the 80s you know there are more um, – if you look at – people often compare the size of previews. And what we have now is a giant phone book compared to what a previews was 25 years ago. But a lot of that, you got to remember, is taken up with T-shirts and toys and board games and things like that. And trades. You know, uh, trades are one of the things I think we've seen uh, take up more space in previews now than, than ever before. Uh, if you look 25 years ago, the collections that were out there, it wasn't – Anything near like what we have right now, um, I think that there are there probably are a lot more publishers, um, you know, putting out one or two books here and there, cl- cluttering up previews. But um, there always were those little publishers, and they'd come in, no pun intended, but they'd come in booms and, and busts. Where in the eighties, when you had the uh, black and white ex- explosion that turtles brought on people came out of the woodwork and there were companies everywhere trying to put stuff out the black and white bust happened and a lot of them folded and then you had the the collapse in the 90s and a lot of companies folded and uh, some companies bought the bought the rights to this company or they bought this company or marvel bought malibu or whatever um but i think there's always been a lot of those small publishers around and uh i should say smaller publishers that are like if you would look at um if you would look at Malibu, and that's a great, great uh, company to use, I think. I think Malibu can be a perfect analog to one of the companies, the bigger companies that's around right now. Malibu put out a lot of stuff. Now they had the the superhero stuff like Prime and Rune and everything, the Malibu verse or whatever they called it. Um, but they were also putting out, you know, Men in Black came out through Malibu. There was a lot of stuff that Malibu put out back in the day that. Um, I think you could compare them to a lot of the companies that are around right now. So I don't think it's a completely new thing. You're right no, that there's I, a lot more than I, ever coming out. But I also feel like there it, it is different in that there's more niche publishers now than there were. Like there weren't – there wasn't a boom that was doing things like Lumberjanes, um, you know, and half of their lineup being so, uh, Powerpuff Girls or whoever has that one. I mean like there wasn't – the very strict niche thrust for kids mm-hmm. like there is now with publishers. You have publishers that have large chunks of their previews, a large percentage of their titles geared towards kids. So 
I think that there's a difference in that the big two, the big three, if you want to count image, they aren't necessarily needing, or, or, and this could have been a lapse of their judgment. They perceived that they no longer had to necessarily cover for all of the all ages spectrum of all ages because these other publishers were out there. And a great case in point for that is Marvel giving up Star Wars Adventures to IDW. Mm -hmm. If they thought they had to cater to all ages of the demographic, why not keep that licensed property under your own flagship? And they don't want to because they don't want to do that. But here's a bigger question. Is that part of the problem? I do think it is, yes. That 30 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe you didn't need... Okay, I guess you had Batman Adventures and that was based on the TV show. Let's say 35 years ago. Yeah, Batman Beyond. 35 years ago, 40 years ago. You didn't need to have a children's version of the Superman book because a kid could go by Superman. And you didn't have to have a children's version of Batman because a kid could go by Batman. Uh, Are they telling better stories than ever in the last, you know, 10, 20 years with some of these characters? Um, Maybe. I mean, I guess if you look at if you look at some of the, the renowned runs that people of Batman, especially everybody loves Tom King. People love Scott Snyder. Grant Morrison had a, an incredible run on Batman. Um, we're getting some great runs on the character. Now, can you compare that back to the, the Adam stuff to Miller's stuff? Can you compare it? You know, I mean, there's, there's been great stuff coming out in these titles for a long, 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 long time. But is the is the overall problem the fact that you now have to split out a lot of these these books into two titles, and here's a kids version, and here's the one that's rated, you know, teen or teen plus or something like that? Um, I I think that might be part of the problem now. I think it's a huge part of it. I mean, we have kids come in here, and we'll show them, you know, the old uh, kids title Batman animated Batman Adventures, whatever. And they'll look at it, and and these are kids that the book was theoretically written for in that you know seven to twelve year old range kind of thing, and they'll look at it, and their first response is, well, th- this looks like a little kids thing, mm-hmm. and then they'll go over and they'll see Batman on the shelf, and they'll be like, this looks cool. Well, you know, okay, mom and dad, seven year old may not be the right age bracket for this. Please preview it before you buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I think that that is a huge part of the the problem is that these books aren't written necessarily for all ages they they are being written for 25 to 60 year old readers that have grown up with the character and you know are at that age in life where they can stomach all of the gruesomeness that may happen or things like that and it's not to say that you can't tell a scary story it's not to say Mm -hmm. that you can't tell uh, an emotional story, a harrowing adventure. It's not you can't. It's not that you can't tell those kinds of stories in an all ages book. It was done. I mean, heck, I remember being a kid in in like element late elementary, early middle school, and reading Goosebumps books. I mean, granted, it's not a comic book, but at the same time, those were scary books. But they were great for kids. And scary is kind of a loose term, but I mean, you know, they were made to give you a little fright or a little anticipation, get your heart rate going, and you can do that in a comic book. With even greater ease, in my mm-hmm. opinion, because you have visuals to go with the print words. So I do think that that's a big part of the problem when you're trying to get, uh, especially a younger demographic of readers on, because it can be tricky with some kids to try and figure out what it is they want to read. And so ultimately, what do, what do you and I end up doing? We pretty much always point them to the dollar bin that has those stories from the eighties and the early nineties that are cheap, that are accessible. 
that aren't overly grotesque and gratuitous with different forms of, uh, you know, scantily clad men and women or... Well, the 90s had a great time. Well, late, mid, mid to late 90s aren't the best. But, I mean, we point them to those books where we can say, you know what, why don't you watch your, t- your you know, mm-hmm. get your taste buds going here. And if you find a couple characters you like, then we can point you towards maybe a trade or something that's more than likely going to be something a little bit older uh, in age-wise material, you know, from a few, you know, a couple decades back that will help you get your feet in there again and, and kind of build them up that way. And that's tricky. That's a hard... Mm-hmm road to hoe for um for retailers because that's a lot of time investment that's a lot of you know making sure you know what you've got and where you're going and ultimately it it puts a lot of onus on a young reader to try it to come back try something else and kids don't have as much patience as adults do so it's just it, it's a hard push and so where do you right. go well you go with where the bread's buttered you go with those 25 to 60 year old folks that have been reading comics forever you're ordering for them Books are being published and directed for them from the big two. That's where you just well, end up going. So that's – well, two things. One, it's a marketing problem. I'll get back to that one. The second one, just to, to close out the kids thing, is whenever people come in and they say, well, is this appropriate for you know, little Timmy? And uh, my I, my question always is, well, it's kind of up to you. Now, I've, I've learned that people sort of had this weird double standard when it comes – or at least parents that we've uh, – interacted with here have this weird double standard when it comes to movies versus comic books and they're more than happy to watch to have their kid watch like Heath Ledger's Dark Knight but um, if there's a, a you know a Batman comic where somebody gets stabbed or something like that that's like too much for little Timmy so it's, it's a weird double standard Ross you know is this they'll say is this appropriate for him and I'll say well I don't know hey, does he like the movies which movies has he seen has he gone to see Batman versus Superman. If you showed him that, you know, has he seen Man of Steel? Has he seen this or that? And if they say, no, no, it's PG-13, we go, okay, well, then you're going to want to read these books over here. If they say, oh, he loves Man of Steel, he watches it 13 times a day, then really there's nothing content-wise in a current Rebirth Superman story that is anything more out of line than you would see in Man of Steel. So it's really, those things are kind of up to the parent to decide. And... um and uh, anyway, the other thing I was to say was marketing. It's kind of a marketing issue where comics aren't, as we've talked about, they're not marketed to kids anymore. Or the ones that are marketed to kids are um, look look what's at the at the cash register at uh, Pick and Save or whatever. Those Marvel digests, Archie digests. It's kind of what we're talking about, where they're. They're putting the children's comics there where you used to just have comic books there. And that is kind of uh, kind of the problem. Yeah. No, I agree. I think marketing is a huge part of it. And I think that that's one of the things that publishers are struggling with and trying to figure out how to, how to manage and mitigate. And ultimately, it's, it, it's their own demise, right? It's their own problem that they've created. And... What comes first? Is it marketing or is it the content, right? Which has to change first or which would, I shouldn't say which has to because they don't have to do anything, Mm -hmm. which would necessitate the other more? Because you can market, you know, whatever you want. You can make, you can make smoking look cool with Joe Camel and the Marlboro Cowboy, but you can't take the health you know, detractions away from smoking. So do you, Mm -hmm. what do you do, right? So how do you do that with comics? And it ultimately, 
to me, it feels like it, it has to be a content-based decision first. But you tell me if you agree with this statement. When it comes to marketing and content, I think the one thing that I would caution any, uh, especially the big two publishers about is if you're going to make that, that switch or you're going to make a concerted effort to maybe bring your, your ratings down to more of a teen rating instead of a teen plus or a mature, that you don't sacrifice on art and you don't go to, you know, hokey art, cartoony art, mm-hmm. things like that, because kids want that rich detail that we can do now with digital and, and, you know, the printing possibilities that we have. They don't want to see sacrificed art. And I don't think that there's any, to me personally, there's nothing, uh, just because the story is all ages doesn't mean that it's any lesser of quality. And therefore, I don't think you should skimp on art. Well, let's jump into this one then. Okay. Uh, you brought up Star Wars Adventures and we're talking about qualities of art and whatnot. Um, Star Wars Adventures, I think, is a book that can fit into everything that we've just talked about. Because yeah. A, does Star Wars Adventures have, is there, was there a need in the market that that filled? Who's buying Star Wars Adventures or who is it marketed towards? Kids who like Star Wars, right? Right. Now, what does that mean that they've seen Star Wars? Yep. So if well, they- I would, I, I would caveat you. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've seen the movies. But they could have seen Clone Wars. They could have seen the Lego Star Wars because that stuff's been pumped out on television like crazy. That's sure. on Netflix and Hulu, and that's what our four-year-old has seen. She's seen some of the some of those the animated kids mm-hmm. stuff. So she's not sat through a New Hope. An not Empire yet. Not yet. We Jedi. figured we'd give her a little bit yet to do that. Okay. But um, so to your point, yes, that means they've seen Star Wars. To what capacity, we can't necessarily say. Mm-hmm. But knowing how the character design for things like Clone Wars is, Star Wars Adventures is more geared towards that style and that So you're, you're saying that the Star Wars Adventures, in theory, in your opinion, is a book that is geared towards people that are interested in Star Wars but have not seen the movies? Potentially, Yes. Correct. I mean, it's also geared towards people who have seen the movies, but I think that the the book itself is more geared to that younger age bracket where the parents may say, well, you're not quite ready for the movie yet, Mm -hmm. and they've seen the other media outputs that there are. Yeah, the only reason I bring that up is, I guess, not having a kid yet, it's not something that I... I'm not totally familiar with all the children's programming out there, but I would, my initial reaction would be, well, if a kid loves Star Wars, then I can't think of anything really in these Star Wars comics that is any worse than anything that you would have seen in the movies, especially the new ones. You know, Rogue One um, was probably the most intense out of all of the the Star Wars movies with regards to the amount of violence that they had. And um, I would think if any kid has sat through that, that there's not going to be anything in the Darth Vader book or the core Star Wars title that's going to be beyond what they've already been exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we if we use, I mean, that's interesting. So if we use that and children to the greater Star Wars universe that they've maybe only glimpsed in Lego Star Wars or the Clone Wars show, then it does have a purpose. Yeah. It does, and I think that that's what it's there for. Um, I think also, but that split branding is is my main argument. We're appealing to to a demographic that's 
that already is a fan of you. And now you have to split it up and have an adult version or an all-ages version, or, well, not an all-ages, kind of a symptom of the product that we have right now, or the problem that we have, which can be a great thing when you're trying to identify a target market. But in comics right now, a lot of things can get lost in the shuffle. If you yeah. throw that much product out there, do they need to maybe make all-ages, not necessarily compromise on the con- sex scenes? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe if, if we want this core Star Wars title to be all ages. We want Superman to be all ages. Adult version, we want to just have the version right. of the book, of the product. Right. That might the core titles. We yeah. weren't buying the children's version of them. And, and I think that um, kids are kids are smarter than people give them credit for. And if a kid jumps into a, like I said, where they don't know who Psylocke and, and Forge and all these other characters are, but they like the art that they're seeing and they like the action and just the general feel of a book. Um, they're going to want to find out who they are. And I, the, I had a, one of those scholastic order forms that we'd always get in grade school and yep. I order like all the X-Men guidebooks and stuff because I wanted to know who these characters were. So I'd read the comic. I'd order one of those things for like four ninety five or whatever. And they come and I devour the whole book, you know, and I, all of a sudden I knew who Moses Magnum and all these other characters were because it interested me enough to make an investment in the universe. And I don't know. I don't think, I don't think people are giving kids more than anything now, more than anything these days with exposure to the internet, you know? Yeah. Uh, we see five-year-olds come in here with smartphones and when people are saying, which not new- that's a whole nother podcast. Oh, uh, we totally, <laughs> we totally are not in favor of that. Obviously, yeah. but I'm saying that it happens all the time. Yes. We so see it. to say that a kid, the, the continuity or a lack of understanding who a character is is going to put a kid off of jumping into a book I think is absolutely wrong because more than anything, they don't have to put the scholastic order in and wait two weeks for the book to show up. They can jump on right now who is Moses Magnum. Yep. Now they know. Yep. So I don't know. I, I think that dumbing books down for kids is never a good thing. Well, you go back and you look at some of the stuff that Stan Lee wrote. Sure. It was all ages, and there Absolutely. were big words in some of those books that you needed a dictionary for, but you know what? And deep content. Yeah, and kids still ate it up because it was great right. stuff, great storytelling. It was and, – and, you know, I think that's another thing with kids. Anyone who has kids knows that by and large, especially as they're younger, their attention span is less than a nap. I mean, they if you can't resolve a story – you're going to have a harder time hooking them. And I think mm-hmm. that that's where Star Wars Adventures um, usually has, I think, two or three stories in it, two stories in a backup or something like that, or a main story in a backup. You can tell James and I haven't really dug into a lot of Star Wars Adventures yet. But um, I still haven't seen, neither of us have seen Last Jedi. No, Friday for me. Okay. But uh, it's one Red of those. Box for me. <laughs> it's one of those things where, um, I don't know where I was going because you derailed me a little bit, but that's okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Nonetheless, um, I think that will publishers make changes? I don't know. Um, I think Marvel has set themselves actually in a good place where they could, if they chose to, from the standpoint of they already have a mature content line, Marvel Max, right? I'm not even talking about Icon. I'm just Marvel Max. They have Max where they can do whatever mature things they want. We can put on the top shelf and we know it's adults mm-hmm. only. So save those stories for that, in my opinion. Take your Marvel main line, and to your point, not every title, I guess, needs to be an all-ages title. You can still have your Team Plus or whatever, sure. on, like Deadpool maybe. 
But, you know, take some of those core characters and don't, again, to your point, don't dumb the story down, but adapt it for an all-ages audience that mm-hmm. can both a young and old can enjoy and get excited about and get behind. I think that that's... Um, I think that's a crucial thing. Now, we've really used Marvel as an example a lot here. Um, we could say the same things about but DC. We, you, you know, talk- we've also used them as an example of what to do right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's they're, they're an easy one to grab because they're obviously one of the big two. And we've talked about the same things with DC, some of their characterizations. Like, are we going to give um, a, a Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor Harley Quinn to an eight-year-old girl? Uh, not no. so much. <laughs> Um, it's, you know, there, there's certain things in there that, uh, but there again goes you know. that that's the content where you have now, yes, Harley Quinn started out in Batman adventures. So we were all exposed to that when we were young. Sure. Um, and I, I hate to say that we've aged with the character, but we have yeah. and what the character has become now in media where, where Harley Quinn is popular, uh, where the, the overall market really got to know her Suicide Squad, which was certainly an R-rated movie. Yep. The Arkham Knight, Arkham City video games, which are... I, I Are those mature? I don't know. I think I'm they're, not a video gamer. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really not either, but... Um, Harley Quinn is... The classic Harley Quinn is not really showing up in anything anymore. Right. You know? uh, Harley Quinn is a character that... If we were... Again, if we were to keep our same standard and we were to ask the parents when they came in and they said, is this Harley Quinn book all right for my daughter? And we said... Well, did your daughter see and enjoy Suicide Squad? And they say yes. Then we go, okay, well, then content-wise, there's nothing in the Harley Quinn book that even touches some of the content in Suicide Squad. So it's actually more than acceptable. If they're like, oh, no, we would no, our sh- It's going to be a couple of years before she sees that. Then, yeah, it's certainly tamer than Suicide Squad. But then we'd go, okay, maybe hold off on it. Yeah, maybe maybe one of these older trades, you know, kind of her first Yeah, her the, first the Terry Dodds and stuff. Terry Dodds you can jump like into that. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. The... Buy the reprint of Mad Love. Yes. Whatever. We have product for that character, but if we if we want to keep if we want to keep this um, same line of reasoning going, then again, her exposure in media these days does gear adult. Yeah. And I don't you look at the costumes that a lot of the Harley Quinn cosplayers wear. You know, any ten-year-olds dressing up. Yeah, very few of them are that old classic, right? Paul Dini, Ty Templeton. You know, yeah. So yeah. I, I think that that if anything, that sort of helps our our case. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Know. I think that that's those are all true points, and and uh, it, it again, it's a struggle. It can be a struggle at times to find good content, and that's why a lot of the kids that come in here that we steer them towards uh, and it tends to be independent stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lumberjanes, Oddly Normal, Bone, Amulet. You know, a lot of the things that we carry for them are not mainstream. I guess one mainstream thing that we do carry that we sell a good amount of is Teen Titans Go. Oh, yeah. That's, that's um, big. And that's, now, that's, that's a great got a example, t- That's though. got a TV franchise behind it. Right. That kids, when they come and see the book, they expect to see mm-hmm. it look like the TV show. That is one example, though, where we have seen, we've gotten... Because of Teen Titans Go, we've gotten people that have jumped into Teen Titans. Yeah. So that that's that is a, a good bit of you know a children's show that has gotten people into the real thing. Um, I mean, we've got pockets like we've got My Little Pony, but that tends to be more of the upper teens to twenties year olds that tend <laughs> mid, to get mid, that mid twenties guys. Well, that too. Uh, 
No, I, the other thing is we 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 will never sell. This has kind of turned more into a selling to kids answer. <laughs> but I think it the whole. I mean, you have to start. A you have new to start somewhere. But, right. Exactly. Um, we've never sold. We will not sell. You know, mature readers' books to kids. But we've had plenty of parents that have come in with their kids that have wanted to buy their kids mature readers' books, and we'll tell them. Just so you know that the you know this is rated mature readers, or if it's an image book. It might not be rated at all, but we'll tell them there's some content in here that, you know, is, it skews older. And, oh, that's all right. You know, you watch all, our movies all the time. All right. Well, we've, we've we did our due diligence. Yep. Past that. It's not even the kid buying them at that point. It's the parent buying them, yep. you know. Have we had one of the funniest things ever was uh, we had this group of three. They must have been like 10 or 11 year olds that came in one time and they were they were all like nervous and shifty. So obviously right off the bat, we're kind of like, oh, watch the backpacks, you know? Um, and they kept the, the two on either side kept poking the one in the middle. Like, ask, just ask, go ask. And finally we're like, Do you, can we help you find something? And he comes up, he goes, Oh, where are your playboys? They're like, we don't sell playboys. Sorry guys. I'm like, Oh, and then they ran out. So every once in a while, you get the kids to come in and like, you know, they think they, I think they have a, a odd idea about what we might be selling, Yeah, but we're never going to sell. We're always going to be, we're going to cap the content. We will sell it to somebody who's now, if you're 16 and you're buying walking dead, okay, whatever, that's fine. You know, right. but we're not going to sell walking dead to a nine year old because his parents, he claims his parents let him watch the show. Right. If the parents want to come in and buy it, that's one thing. Um, but I, I think that, you know, in that instance, do we wish that we had a walking dead junior book or something? No, no, <laughs> we don't because most of the time we found out those these kids are telling the truth and their parents, the eight year olds, nine year olds, their parents do let them watch walking dead. I think that speaks more to the parenting than anything else. But right. then when we say we won't sell it, the parents come in and they'll buy it for them. Okay. That's fine. Which is but fine. We protected yeah. ourselves. Right. Um, and and it's Whatever. not that we're ever against any kid wanting to read anything. We we just don't want that one time where we let that kid buy Walking Dead and the parent comes in and starts asking us questions. And we saying, don't need you know, to be calling the comic book legal defense fund. Right. So for us, it's better. That ounce of prevention is just better than, you know, whatever else could come. Um, you know, the other, the other one that's an interesting case study is Rick and Morty. Yeah. Drawn like a kid's book. A young kid's book. Definitely not a young kid's book in content. Sells fantastic for us, though. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, who would have guessed, right? But it's one of those things where the marketing is done well for that. <laughs> it reaches quite an audience. Yeah. So we just have to be careful, you know, who's picking that one up. On the... Um, I, do you... I mean, I, I don't know. I think we've kind of... Do you have anything more to add on this one? Uh, no, I don't think so. Do you have one more thing you want to toss in there? Yeah, I just, I started thinking, I know I brought it up to you the other day, but I started thinking about it when you mentioned Dark Horse. Obviously, the, the Fox thing. Ah. It, you know, if this becomes final, I am, I'm a little worried for Dark Horse because they have, once they lost Star Wars, obviously that, that took away their, their bread and butter. Um, Dark Horse, you, you think of their, their big licensed titles. It's Damn. Alien and Predator now, which, they ramped they and they deliberately ramped it up after losing Star Wars because this is our biggest 
next biggest franchise and we want to make this kind of a Star Wars-esque universe. And they ramp that up. Aliens, Predator, Prometheus, Firefly, Buffy. Serenity. Yeah, well, it's Firefly. Yeah. So it's um, still part of the family. What was the... Uh, there were a couple other big ones that they had. Well, they have the Magnolaverse. Um, well, that's different. I'm just talking about the Fox properties. I know that there were a couple of other ones. Anyways, if all of a sudden... Did they do anything with Avatar? Because I know that that's part of the Fox thing, yeah, too. Yeah, you know, I think so, but I am pretty sure James Cameron owns that. He owns that, but I know that Fox had the rights for the next three movies, which now would transfer to Disney. Okay. They did, but I don't, but I don't think, think they've published anything in a long time for that. Well, they had... I think they did... Uh, the free comic book day book this year was a flip book, and I think half That's of it right. was Avatar. I think you're right. Um, the the blue people, not yeah. the last airbender. Right. For those From the land of Pandora? Whatever. I think. 3D land. Um, anyway, I'm just, I, I am genuinely worried <laughs> if what would happen if Dark Horse loses those licenses because they would, yes, they would have Hellboy, which I think would then become their number one thing. They'd be dependent on Mike McNoll and Brian Wood. Yeah, yeah. So here's hoping. I know that they that they have done. I mean, they've been such good stewards of that franchise since the '80s. Uh, of, uh, especially, I mean, Aliens and Predator, um, and they were great stewards of Star Wars. They took Star Wars through kind of a dark period where interest had, had completely waned, and yeah, and then you um, had the abomination of Episodes One through Three. Yeah, came out. So I'm I'm genuinely worried. I I hope. They're able to keep something going. I I don't think that Disney would want Marvel to all of a sudden start publishing Alien and Predator books. But at the same time, you never know when they're going to go. Yeah, we'll take we, it. We have, we have more. Uh, all of a sudden, maybe they're the free reign that might have been afforded the guys at Dark Horse to tell this story or that story might turn into resubmit draft number 38 for approval again because you need to change this you need to change that um i i I worry that they're going to be a little bit more uh protective uh, and hands-on with those properties than than fox has been so well and this is assuming that everything goes through it hasn't gone through yet and i know that there's a lot of paperwork and legalese that has to go go through everything um but you know, if that does happen, that is an interesting the are, point. The odds are pretty good, I think. And I think that doesn't didn't Fox own like a ten or fifteen percent stake in Boom Studios? Um, I'm not sure. I think they do. So I don't know if anything has to come of that, or if that would how that would work. See, I'm looking. Even if they get to keep the licenses, we have all been in companies that have been snatched up by a, a larger company or merged with another company where. There have been redundancies, and um, all of a sudden, maybe your department is the same, but now you report to somebody different, and you've reported to the same person for 20 years or 15 years or 10 years. Um, oh, sure enough. Yeah, so in June of twenty of this past this year, Boom sold a minority stake to Fox. So, huh. Yeah, so that that also could be interesting to see where that goes. Um, yeah, boy. Well, yeah, that'll be that'll be very interesting. Mickey wants it, to it run is, the world. It is five percent of the population. The it, the Fox deal basically has to do with superhero movies. You know, 
Um, obviously, there's so much more behind it, but yeah. uh, what what immediately affects your average consumer? It's going to be the well, the superhero movies, and and what do we kind of look at? We look at the what the, might the happen guys. With, the, with the comic uh, licenses and, yeah. and stuff. But uh, yeah, that's I don't know, man. I, uh, I'm really hoping Dark Horse is able to to pull out a win from this one. Yeah, I guess that's it'll be interesting to see. And I don't, I don't know as if any, I don't think any other publishing companies really have large stakes of Fox uh, Fox IP. Like, there's nothing from Titan. I don't think there's anything in IDW per se. Is there? Uh, I don't think so. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what what shakes out if this hit does go through fully. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I I think um, more than anything, next year's retailer summit is going to be uh, that's going to be a miss. Real interesting one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we talked to Randy Stradley last year at C2E2 about the Aliens and Alien and Predator comics, obviously he's been pretty intimately involved with them since the 80s, you know, and he was he's a great guy and we had a really good conversation about where they want to kind of go with a franchise and the comic book wise, you know, and, and getting that tied in with the the movies that are coming out and he was rather forthcoming about the interactions that they've had with, with Fox because at that point, and it still isn't out yet. Um, the new predator movie was, um, was filming. I think while we were at, uh, C2E2, it was in the middle of filming and he was on his way to fly out like to the set or something that next week, um, to meet with some of the, the people he would liaise with. Um, and then obviously you had alien covenant, which didn't do so hot. Uh, <clears throat> but he was talking about how they, they have by and large been a very good company to work with. And, uh, hopefully that stays the same, but you know, you never know anything's possible. Yeah. Well, want to wrap this one up? I got nothing else. Okay. Well, I'm going to add one thing. So in the, uh, vein of Star Wars adventures, we're going to do a shameless unscripted, uh, plug for our friend Otis Frampton. So, in the January previews, you will see Star Wars Adventures number 8, the Retailer Incentive cover, which is a 1 in 10 cover, will be by Otis, and the exciting part about this is, for anyone who follows him, you'll know that he loves drawing Jawas. He has, before IEW got the Star Wars Adventures license, he was drawing Jawas and putting the Marvel branding on top of them. Uh, as examples in the hopes of being able to do a Jawa Adventures comic book. Well, when IDW got the license, he switched over that branding to IDW, and it caught the eye of one of the editors at IDW, and he is writing a backup story in Star Wars Adventures number 8. So, as far as I'm aware, this will be the first Jawa story ever told in comic book form, Hmm. and it will have that exclusive cover. So just be on the lookout for that. Uh, we would we want to plug it because he's been um, just we, a fantastic creator for us to to work with. His work does really well in our store, and he he's a great artist. I mean, his, he is. If you want to get an idea of what it's going to look like, just Google Otis Frampton. Yep, Jawa Adventures. He has uh, hundreds of Jawa sketches sketches that he's done, and they're all great. Covers, I mean, yeah. he. he um, I don't want to be 
it's it's gonna it's probably the the average thing that people say, but um, I think he is comparable to very comparable to Scotty Young, yep. and I think that um, you know with the talent that he has, he should. I want to see Jawa variants. I want to see I want to see a core Jawa book. I think yeah. it would be hilarious. You know, I think it would be um, talk about an all ages book. His stuff is not. His stuff is all ages, but it doesn't talk down to kids. Oddly normal is the same thing. Yep. Anybody can pick up any of his work, and it does complete. It completely goes from uh, the youngest to the oldest can enjoy it, and that's why I hope it's such a success because it's it would be one of those all ages Star Wars books that anyone could jump into without having to worry about. Am I reading a kid's book? You know, that's Otis's stuff. That's what he does. He tells yep. great all ages stories. Yeah, so if you uh, if you're at all a fan of Jawas or Star Wars, just be on the lookout for that book, and uh, you know try and snag a copy and support him. Or at the very least, if you want to know what some of his stuff looks like, we're getting pretty close to Christmas. But if you haven't gotten your Christmas cards out or printed yet, uh, you can go to uh, you can just like look up his Twitter or Instagram, and you can go to his um, site and download last year's Jawa Christmas card and this year's Jawa Christmas card for free. And print them out, or you can send them as e-cards if you like, and save on shipping. Ooh. But uh, either way, just wanted to put that uh, little push out there for him. We're hoping that he does well. We're going to order a nice stack of them here to make sure that we support it, and uh, we know it'll do well. So that's all I think that I've got for this episode. James, you said you're done. I'm done. So for both of us, James and I, we will talk to you next time. On behalf of all of us, thank you for listening to this episode of Cowcast. You can find us on all the main social media outlets, including Facebook at facebook.com slash Incredicow, on Twitter at Incredicow, or on Instagram at Cowabunga Comics. To send an email to us directly, send it to podcast at cowabungacomics.com, or to join in the discussion, you can hop on our new Cowabunga Comics forum at forums.cowabungacomics, that's cowabunga with a K, dot com. 